Aldous Huxley was an English writer and philosopher. He wrote nearly 50 books. And here's his quote about history. That men do not learn very much from the lessons of history is the most important of all the lessons of history. Welcome to the History Slices Podcast. A mother-son duo discussing awesome bits of history. We prove on every show that history is not boring. Entertaining, yet stimulating. This is History Slices. And now, here's your hosts, Jacob and Rachel. Hi, Jacob. Hey, Mom. How you doing? <laughs> Pretty good. How you doing? I'm doing well. I'm excited to finish up part two, an unexpected part two of the Ebor <laughs> City Chronicles <laughs> that we started last time. So last week, last episode, yeah. we talked about the Ebor City history. Um, if you missed last week's episode, go back and check it out. Um, it'll give you some context to what we're going to talk about today. And, and why our roles are switched. Why our roles are switched. <laughs> but why don't you go ahead and give a quick rundown why yeah. what we're doing. Sir, so basically, we thought it'd be a fun idea to kind of switch roles for a time I, it's it was gonna be an episode but it's kind of spawned another yeah. one which is fine yeah so yeah you pick the uh the topic which so far has been very fascinating I've learned a bunch and I've been uh hopefully well uh, uh, <laughs> providing commentary and my own thoughts right so uh, last time I mentioned that I wanted to dedicate the episode, the topic really, to my mom. But then I didn't actually say who my mom was. So <laughs> people who know me know who my mom yeah. is. But let me just say that her name was, before she married my dad, her name was Sandra Fernandez. She grew up in Palmetto Beach, which is actually southeast of Ybor City, just a little bit, a couple miles. And uh, she lived on the street that the streetcar went down on the way to a park called DeSoto Park on McKay Bay where the Latin community would come and have picnics. It was a big social outing thing. Oh, that's so, interesting. Yeah, the, the, yeah. the uh, streetcar would carry people from downtown Ybor City, <laughs> 7th <laughs> Avenue, and would come straight down their street. So that must have been a really kind I'm of an sure. exciting place to be. Yeah. So, okay, in this episode, since last time we talked about chronology, I'm going to give some detail about right. um, Ybor City. Sure. And specifically organized crime in Ybor City. Which I'm really interested in. I, I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm really interested in true crime stories, like oh, stuff like that is really particularly interesting. related to like the mafia. I mean, the like mafia that? is interesting, yeah, yeah, but just kind of in general, it's just one yeah. of those topics that it's like for listeners of our podcast, they will know this. I have to really try to like not turn this into an unsolved mysteries <laughs> yeah. thing, you know, yeah. just because that's really interesting to me. This um, has a tiny unsolved mystery in it, well, but it's, it's just, not fascinating. It's not really the big part of the story, but it's sir, sir. When you mentioned, because I remember last time you mentioned organized crime and I perked up a bit I'm like oh you know oh. That, that's not that the rest isn't interesting yeah. of course but that's I guess more relevant to my interest yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense it's funny because when I I mean at, first of all I, I'm not crazy about unsolved mysteries or true crime stories <laughs> no I know this about you <laughs> and I, don't, I mean that in the nicest way I know but, <laughs> <laughs> I know. but whenever I think about talking in public about the mafia like I I don't want to say it's scary, but it, there's an element of, I don't know what it is. I don't know how to call it, but like, I'm afraid somebody's going to come after me if I talk about them, you know, like, cause there's still, it's not that far in the past. I'm sure that there's still underworld stuff going well, on. Yeah. But know? like, no one cares about two no names talking about. Yeah. 
decade I know, old. I know that's the rational stuff. side of me. I, I realize especially that. when that information's already public. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. That's true. That's true. Yeah. yeah. I, and I'm I know that that's kind of an irrational fear, but it's just it's not even really like a fear. It's more like I, a I, wow. You know. I know it's all good. I get that too. Like when I'm home alone and when the dog starts barking out the window into the darkness of the night. Yeah, you start to wonder if there's a mafia just, guy out there. No, I just like I, it's just they saw a squirrel or something yeah. and I can't see, so I'm like, hmm, I don't like that. Yeah, yeah, I know. Okay, so you can relate. Well, in addition to organized crime in Ybor City, I'm also going to talk about the cigar workers and their lives uh, in a little bit more detail. I'm going to do it in that order because I want to finish with the cigar workers because they're really the bigger picture. They are kind of the heart of Ybor City. Beautiful way of saying Uh, that. Just because, well, I say that because... From what I remember from last uh-huh. week, uh, what you um, were talk- telling me about last time, Ybor City kind of was founded because of the cigar business. Yes. And it kind of boomed, at least initially, due to that. Right. So in a sense, that partic- the city district, whatever, has that profession business. Industry. Industry. That's the word I was trying <laughs> to find. It has that industry to think for. It uh, sure does. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I think that's totally uh, fitting. Okay, so as I said, I was going to be trying to paint a picture. And that's really what I'm trying to do, which is super challenging. So I'm looking at this microphone. (laughs) I can't show you any pictures, literally. (laughs) So I'm going to be trying to paint this picture of the cigar workers' lives. And one of the things I decided I would do was use uh, some resources I have at my disposal. And one of them is this book called Tampa Cigar Workers. It's written by Robert Ingalls. It's a very straightforward title. Yeah, it is. There's no question about what this is about. (laughs) (laughs) Robert B. Ingalls and Louis A. Bedith, Jr. So inside this book, it's actually just a book full of quotes of people who were like, who lived at the time or were remembering things about the time when uh, anything, anytime in Ybor City. Um, So I've actually pulled out a few of those quotes to kind of interject. So hopefully that's not going to get tedious. Um, Most of the quotes you're going to hear are going to come from that book. So I just kind of want to source that there. All right. Without further ado, organized crime. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm um, right into it. Awesome. uh, Yeah. And hopefully this gets a little bit confusing with the times. Um, It's, you know, life Mm -hmm. is not a nice, straightforward path. There's a lot of things happening at well, that's a tricky thing with um, nonfiction or telling true stories is that it doesn't like as a species, like as storytellers, we kind of have an audiences, I should say, we kind of have an idea of how stories should go, you know, with like right. beginning, middle, end, uh-huh. a three act structure, nice and clean. you know, rising conflict and you got the climax and then like the kind of aftermath. Real life doesn't work like that. It doesn't follow those rules. So a lot of... It's a little messier. Yeah. Than and a lot of stories, people die randomly, yeah. you know, yeah. like unexpected stuff happens. Yeah. It's just, that's just life, but it makes it kind of tricky to to tell stories right because you have to tie it all up somehow yeah right well i'm gonna i'm gonna kind of jump in kind of in the middle here and then i'm gonna back up but just to make note that the prohibition act of 1919 that caused a lot of yeah right and so uh, that's actually a little bit after i want to start the story but uh, during that time tampa was known as one of the wettest spots in the u.s for like the next 16 years it was a haven for smugglers a lot Mm -hmm. of the booze came from cuba and the bahamas and city 
and county officials were blatantly corrupt. They yeah. were just like turn the other way and like not look. Also, election fraud was prevalent oh, wow. during the first half of the 20th century. I'm not sure how much of that entirely was uh, related to organized crime. Sure. A lot of it was related to a fellow named Charlie Wall, who we're going to talk about. Okay, cool. Uh, before we get to him, I just want to say, because I know some historical background here regarding prohibition. prohibition. Uh-huh. Yeah. Nothing too like complicated or out of topic, hopefully. But a lot of authorities, both in the police and even in like local government, not so much federal, of course, but like local government, weren't really faithful to prohibition laws. To enforcing. Right. Yeah. And um, there was very little prohibition agents compared to the rest of the country. And we share a massive border with Canada, which has free alcohol. <laughs> so it's like a lot of, or had at the time, you know, they still do. You know, yeah. you know what I mean, though. A, not free, you mean legal. Legal, that's yeah, what I yeah. meant. It's free to drink. Yeah, yeah right. That's <laughs> what I was trying to say. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, you have the freedom to drink. Not, yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the reasons why it became such a racket is because it was easy mm-hmm. and people were paying through the yeah. nose for it. Really interesting time it in is. our nation's yeah. history. So I'm going to start off with a quote, and this is by Tony Pizzo. He was quoted in 1983 saying this, but Tony Pizzo's name comes up a lot. He okay. was a historian of the Tampa Bay, I say Tampa Bay, really Tampa and Ybor City area, history. Yeah, and area. I don't know too much about him, only that he's known as a historian. He's, he's a source a lot of people go to. Yes, yes. Sir. The illegal acts that organized crime handled or whatever yeah. dealt with um, were bolita, bolita, <laughs> prostitution, gambling, corruption, bribery, etc. Those kinds of things. And I'm going to explain Sir. what bolita is because that's the only one I don't that's recognize. A, it's a term that's maybe unknown. So here's the quote. An enterprising Spaniard, Manuel Suarez, better known as El Gallego, because he's from Galicia in Spain, moved to Ybor City and introduced Bolita to Tampa. In the early 1890s, El Gallego, they were really big. This is not part of the quote. They were really big Uh, on nicknames there. In fact, I have a book that's all about, like a little booklet all about nicknames of Tampa. It's really cool. But anyway, this guy's nickname was El Gallego. He opened a saloon in the Sevilla building on the northeast corner of 14th Street and 8th Avenue. Here he introduced the friendly, sociable game of chance known as Bolita or Little Ball. Okay. In 1927, the vicinity boasted the presence of approximately 300 bolita joints. More than 1,200 bolita peddlers made the rounds of the city, covering cigar factories, homes, offices, government buildings. Almost everyone in Tampa played bolita. The nickel and dime game established by El Gallego had become a social monster, a multi-million dollar dragon. Wow. That's Tony Pizzo's quote. It wasn't legal, but everybody played it. Sure. And so they would... So basically, you'd put money on a number. Mm-hmm. And the way that it worked is there were little wooden balls numbered one to a hundred, and all the balls were put into a bag, and the bag was tossed around a circle of men, and then something was like tossed in the air, and one of the balls would be grabbed through the bag yeah. and held on to, and then they would cut that ball out with some scissors, and the number on that ball was a winning number. Okay. So whoever was holding that number, whoever bought the ticket or whoever yeah. that had that number. So it's just gambling, basically. It's gambling. Okay. Yeah. They were paid at a rate of eight to one. Oh, wow. Uh, and Bolita was thrown every night at nine o'clock and twice on Sundays. So here, here's the thing that I have to say about that. First of all, interesting way to gamble. Yeah, um, it's very rudimentary. Kind yeah, of, it's it? very straightforward. I'm like, okay, I mean, yeah. I, I, I can, There's I, balls, I can which understand that more it's than It's not like that f- much different poker. from our, our um, you know, the lottery that we have yeah, today. Yeah, that's what I was thinking digital about. Version of it. Uh, like the balls in the wheel and you spin yeah, the wheel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the thing about stuff like that, when it's, and this is true for um, alcohol, Alcohol too during Prohibition. I know we're not quite there yet, but it like in the timeline. Yeah. But 
when something is legal, you can control it. You can like yeah. regiment it. You can have rules about it. When it's illegal, you can try. Well, you can try, but you know what I mean. Like on the books, where it's like, um, when it's illegal and it's kind of underground, quote unquote, anything goes. Yeah, you and, have no control. Yeah, and that's the that was the case with uh, I don't know much about um, Olita. Is that mm-hmm, how you say it? Mm-hmm. But I mean, that's kind of probably just tied in with gambling in general. But like with alcohol, as an example, like a lot of the rules around drinking alcohol disappeared. Mandatory closing hours, rules regarding like men and women, you know, or like because before prohibition, they couldn't drink together. And afterwards, that had changed yeah. because of like just um, yeah, all the, the rules went out the window. Rules. Yeah, yeah. Man, like uh, mandatory drinking aids, yeah. all or know. nothing. Yeah, kind so, of situation. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting, it isn't is. it? How how that's all mixed together. Well, of course, what would happen is people would cheat. Mobsters would cheat oh, by yeah. sometimes they would freeze a ball so they'd be easy to pick out the cold one. Oh right. Or they would uh, fill it with lead so it'd be the heavy one, I and see. they'd be able to pick it out. And that way, they'd of course have a better chance of, of picking winning. the right yeah, number, right? Um, I guess it, you couldn't just make them all the same number, yeah. right? <laughs> like someone <would> notice. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, like I said, Belita was illegal, but the law enforcement were easily bribed to look the other direction, mm-hmm. and it was popular across the population, regardless of ethnic group or socioeconomic lines they right. just everybody like to play okay so i well, mean it's a real easy game to pick up so it is and exciting too because like for a nickel or dime you could you know potentially yeah no i can well that's the thing with gambling is that it's really easy to get into it and it's really easy to lose all your money <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's the problem with gambling is yeah. that if if you don't think things through and you're not responsible which in the heat of the moment, uh, you know, a lot of people are something like, no, I'm on a streak, you know, yeah. whatever. Oh, goodness. That's Gambling can be that. really yeah. tricky. Yeah, it can be. I never make a bet unless I know the outcome, which isn't really a bet, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so you're not a gambler. No, not basically. <laughs> uh, but if a sucker's going to give me his money. All right. So, so Charlie Wall, I mentioned him before. Yes. He was nicknamed the Dean of Tampa's Underworld. He was also called the White Shadow. Okay. Uh, because of because he was a white guy right um and he also wore uh, his typical dress was like a white suit with a straw see. hat so you can kind of picture this okay so this the, the nickname isn't as dumb as it initially sounds right or it, it sounds is like dumb, a, but at least something it's from a dumb. radio show yeah, yeah it does the white shadow but he's an interesting really interesting character he was born in 1880 um he was the son of a mayor and okay. i think his mom was like a mayor's daughter or something so very prominent family he could have, I mean, the world was practically his oyster, probably. He could have done sure. just about anything. But I think he had some troubles early on. First of all, his mom died when he was kind of young. His dad also died when he was still in his teens. So he had kind of a rough go of things to begin with. Not to excuse anything, but no. he chose not to go the... Uh, the straight and narrow. The straight <laughs> yeah, and narrow path. So oh, that, that I'm sorry, that, that reminds me of um, someone I'm planning on having an episode about later on. Oh, cool. But that, Connections. that's interesting. Dun, yeah. Dun, dun. Uh, anyway, um, so I read that he had connections, his connections to quote unquote blue blooded families. 
which I actually had to look that up. I could kind of sense, okay, I know what he means by blue blooded, but what what is, well, I had a sense of it, but I didn't know how to communicate it. And I wanted to make sure that I was communicating correctly. Yeah. It actually means like from like royal Mm -hmm. blood or whatever. You know why they call him that? I would love to know why. Uh, Because of all the inbreeding back in the day that really uh, blue blooded, huh? Yeah. Yeah. And it would allegedly, I don't know if this is true, but allegedly the story goes that the inbreeding, one of the um, defects that would be a result of that <laughs> yeah. is that your blood would change its state or whatever. I Which think. Which can't really I, happen, probably, but probably that's not. really or, interesting. Or maybe it was just like. Uh, Increase in hemophilia yeah. or something like that. Uh, that's true. Yeah, maybe so. Something like that. Yeah, so maybe that's what it is. Because hemophilia does run in royal families. Yeah, I don't it? know. May, I probably am misremembering that. No, but, but that's that's cool. It's Isn't... related to the inbreeding, I yeah. think. Yeah, wow. Mm-hmm. So his connections Continue. to this, you know, basically the upper class, Yeah, I'm guessing. You know, people who are educated, people who had money, people who didn't seem to have a lot of troubles probably in their lives. Anyway, because of his connections into that group of people, he was able to get clientele for his gambling endeavors and other illegal acts or whatever through that pool of people where other people who were already on the crime side or whatever couldn't really access or break through that to get into that community. So he, he had connections. They he didn't. had connections. So he really bridged the gap between, you know, uh, and, and also politics. The political oh, yeah. side and crime. He kind of tied the two together. So he was in a unique position. Yeah, and that is very kinda, unique. Yeah. Well, it's one of those it's one of those interesting things where it's like most people I'm generalizing. Most people, when they turn to crime, whether it's organized or not, you know, part of the mafia or not, mm-hmm. it tends to be either you were born and raised in it or it's like a desperation thing where yeah. it's like, I can't, I need money I've and I no can't make it, go. you know, yeah, where legitimate, yeah. anyway, legitimate. So it's really interesting to me that this guy who had privilege, had wealth, right. didn't have to do this, wasn't born into it, as far as we know, chose to be a criminal. Like, that's yeah. interesting. Like, I wonder what that says about, like, the psychology of someone like that. It's really fascinating. And I mentioned his the death of his parents early because who knows if that played a part. Sure. But, I mean, there's plenty, not, not to discredit that, but there's plenty of orphans who don't <laughs> join uh, the mafia. I know, I know. But he got mixed up in it somehow when he was Sir. younger. It said something I read was he would kind of go hang out at these places. And mm-hmm. I think he was maybe a courier or something to begin with. So he started to learn about it because he was trying to stay away from home. He didn't like his stepmother or something like that. In fact, okay. I think he actually ended up shooting his stepmother. Oh, geez. Um, not killing her, but then he was sent away to military school um, where he got expelled. <laughs> his, he just his just wasn't a confinable sort of person. Uh, evidently not. It sounds yeah. like, I mean, I don't know the guy, um, yeah. but it sounds like he had one of those personalities that's probably like didn't do him any favors. I think so, but he actually had a benevolent side to him also. A like he would give did. he would give money away to children Children. Um, he also, uh, one of the strikes that I mentioned in our last episode, I talked about there being a lot of labor strikes and, and strife with labor. Well, the, one of the strikes uh, that was in 1910, I think that was one that was particularly brutal. He provided food for 900 cigar workers and their families in, in Ybor City in West Tampa, 900 for these people who are striking to get better, you know, whatever pay or whatever the cause was. I don't, I don't, sure. didn't go into the details of that strike to refresh my memory no, or anything it's like all that. Good. But, but anyway, so that was sort of his benevolent side he was mm-hmm. also giving but he's also obviously very controlling so yeah um, Al Capone was like that yeah um, where like he was all smiles in front of a camera or in front of the public he even like um I don't know the context behind this I mean I said talk about it but he you know he had a very different public persona to 
you know, constantly ordering hits out on people, yeah, which is what he crazy? did. Yeah, it's, it was it's so very two-faced. Duplicitous. Is yeah. that the right word? Where it's like, how can you, on one hand, mm-hmm. do this nice thing, and then on the other hand, just go kill somebody? It's just a weird life. But it is. Anyway, so uh, so he kind of had favor with the Latin people uh, because of that. And although the Cubans and the Spaniards f- were the first ones to organize these Bolita syndicates, they call them, Charlie Wall, he was, quote unquote, an Anglo. He so was the one guy. who was, yeah, uh, yeah, he was. He created that partnership between campus gambling and the political interests. Um, so how it worked with the Bolita was that the Bolita operators paid Wall for protection from police, and Wall would buy votes and win elections, literally buy votes, yeah. win elections for politicians to maintain the status quo. If he didn't buy votes, if he couldn't win by buying votes, he did something to stuff the ballot boxes. And so it was, there was a lot of corruption. Like the yeah. f- whole first half of the century is pretty incredible oh, yeah. to read about all that. No, it is. Absolutely. So 1920s, there was a turf war. <laughs> <laughs> I like that thought. A turf war between Charlie Wall and this guy named Ignacio Antinori, which uh, why, he's just, an Italian guy. I can tell from the name. Why is a turf war so funny to you? I don't know. Turf war just sounds like something out of a cartoon. Oh, okay. It was a turf war. <laughs> I guess. You know, like... <laughs> yeah. Or like something like West Side Story or something. Like I, turf I guess. War. Well, yeah, I guess. But West <laughs> Side Story seems, is like half a mafia story. It is. I know. It just seems sort of story, like... It, it, the Made name up. seems a little juvenile. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Juvenile or goofy for like a turf war. This I is guess. my turf. Well, uh, yeah. I don't, I don't know. know. I never thought of it as that, but maybe it's just because I spend more time uh, looking at it. Just struck, it just stories. struck me as funny for some <laughs> sir, reason. I don't sir. know. Just a funny term. Yeah. So, so I'm sorry. Who are these yeah, people? Yeah, that's okay. So this is so in the twenties, that's when this turf war started mm-hmm. between Wall and this Italian guy and Tenori. In the thirties, though, it, like he was the king, right, of the organized crime, but that started to be challenged by Italian gangsters. I know Antonori was Italian. I'm not sure exactly. This is where that sort of the confusion comes in, like the connection. But the Sicilian mafia wanted some of Wall's power right. with the Bolita and everything else. And there were several failed attempts on his life. In the late 30s, his closest confidant, I believe it was his closest confidant, was Tito Rubio. Okay, I thought I was going to say uh, Tito Printe or something. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? <laughs> Tito Rubio, he was murdered. Oh, no. Um, and wow. after that, actually, Wall fled to Miami afterward. And in the 40s, the Bolita business continued to flourish, but under the Italian syndicate. Sure, so they kind of muscled in. and They did. And they were really strong because they were connected by family. Like, Wall had a lot of um, people had- who followed, who were loyal to him yeah. but they weren't like family they weren't ties blood yeah. i've heard of that about the mafias you really have to or at least the uh, sicilian mafia the italian mafia you really have to a be italian and b be related to be someone. part of the family yeah just yeah. really really strong blood ties and yeah i guess in this case it won out over just having a lot of personal influence as opposed to family influence i guess yes yeah. i don't know how to say that it's just that the italian mafia with their family maybe was just bigger and it wasn't just it wasn't just tampa you know it was chicago new york oh and yeah all that. so sure. it was just a much bigger syndicate um so a little bit more confusing with that uh, ignacio antonori guy what happened with him is that he sent some some narcotics to chicago to a monster up do. there or something as yeah. you know as you would <laughs> in your daily work it was Sorry. a bad shipment something oh. happened he didn't want to refund their money <laughs> yeah give them a discount or anything he just the tech bounced just or whatever said, you yeah. know suck it up sorry you know deal with it yeah. um so they came to tampa and killed him oh wow and i believe hopefully i'm not misstating that story <laughs> 
James Lumia, some guy named James Lumia, supposedly was the first true mafia boss right. in Tampa, but his reign didn't last very long. He was killed in 1950. Okay. And he was succeeded by Santo Traficante Sr. Okay. Have you I, ever heard of Traficante? N- no, no. It sounds like someone who would direct traffic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he kind of does. He does. He just sounds just sounds, I don't know. Oh, anyway, he sounds I don't want to say anything aggressively bad. Aggressively Italian. Yeah, he does. <laughs> I mean, they yeah. all do, but. Well, yeah, you have to be careful. I don't want to make any Italians mad because. No, you know, no. It's all, I love Italians. But uh, anyways, he ruled for four years. He actually died of stomach cancer. Nothing, you know, related to the business. But um, he was succeeded by his son, who okay. was Santo Traficante Jr. Um, that makes sense. Yes. And he ruled for a number of years. I'm not sure how many more years. But um, a while. A while. Sir. So they had like a dynasty thing going they on. They kind of, a little bit, a little bit, even though the senior was in for just about four years. But during this whole Sir. time, Charlie Wall, he was in mm-hmm. Miami. And in the 1950s, Florida and 13 other states were investigated by a Senate committee for organized crime, gambling, and other illegal activities. You don't say. I'm soft. Yeah, soft, in the 1950s. <laughs> organized Charlie crime? Wall, really? <laughs> Charlie Wall testified. Oh, he came wow. up from Miami and he he's testified. A, he squealed. He's a rat. <laughs> Actually, he didn't. He, uh, oh. If you read his testimony, he pretty much doesn't give anything away. Oh, and he's wow. Like, okay. He's like, has a, this sort of um, engaging presence and, oh, yeah, you know, of course, like somebody had... who kind of likes the limelight a little bit. And he yeah. has just great comments, and he's a, he's one of those like really charismatic people. Yeah, that's probably and he doesn't. Yeah, that's exactly. why he was so successful and managed to get so many people in his pockets, yeah. despite being a white guy <laughs> in a, a Latin community who isn't related to any of the, like, the yeah. big wigs, yeah. at least not by blood. Probably because he was just really charismatic. He's probably really smart too, able to handle a lot of stuff. So sure. anyway, unfortunately, he did move back to Tampa. He ended up moving back to Tampa. Okay, I'm not sure exactly what year that was but in 1955 when he was 70 years old he was murdered in his home right um his throat was cut and he was like bludgeoned with a bat or something that like seems that seems like a little overkill but yeah i think he only needed one of those scenes one of those scenes for a 70 it. year yeah. old you don't need yeah. to do both gosh <laughs> um the killer was never located so of there's your little not. unsolved mystery yeah um, oh i see so they don't really know why. They just thought maybe it was like an old, um, old grudge. Old or something. grudge. Yeah. yeah. Came back to haunt him at age 70. So you just always be looking over your shoulder. Just, there's a lot of neat stories. Not neat. <laughs> there's a lot of interesting <laughs> stories about this guy and sure. you know, the life and times of living during that time. Yeah, getting away totally. from, you know, gangsters shooting at him and, uh, you know, getting away yeah, by driving backwards. And, yeah, driving yeah. backwards. I don't need to know the context. That's just funny. <laughs> anyway, so that's... That, there's more to organized crime and all that in Ybor City and, and the corruption, the uh, corrupt elections and officials and people who, you know, who went down for that and some who got away with it and, and stuff like that. Lots of interesting history. But that kind of wraps up my segment on organized crime in yeah. Ybor City. Well, that sounds like a, a topic that's really interesting. And I can't I, I can't speak for any of our audience, of course. But as for myself, I might look more into that because yeah. that sounds that sounds cool. I, I hope you do. OK, so now we're going to shift a little bit and go into the life of the cigar workers again yeah. the heart of Ybor City and West Tampa too but um, <laughs> they were called in Spanish it's tabaqueros because they're the ones who tobacco make, I recognize uh, that in the, yeah. the word I don't tobacco know it, workers is sure. literally what it means or cigar workers so I'm going to read another quote okay cool cool who's this by it actually was uh, the Federal Writers Project in 1935 have you ever heard of the Federal Writers Project uh, if I have I don't remember I believe that this was a 
and don't quote me on this because I didn't look it up to verify. I'm just no, going off fine. my memory. It was post-depression or trying to get out of the depression, right? Sure. Um, who was yeah. president during the depression? Um, Roosevelt? It, he, it was, let's see, Hoover was president during the beginning. I'm trying to think if there's anyone between Hoover and Roosevelt because Roosevelt's like the one who kind of helped us get out of it. I think this might have been a Roosevelt project, oh, but sir. it was a way to employ people. And what they did is a bunch of writers were employed to go around the country and basically document life. Okay. How cool is that kind of? So there's yeah. actually a lot of information in archives from the Federal Writers Project oh, around this time that we have a lot of could, information. Yeah, you could go, I guess I'd say you can go to the library, but really you could just go online. <laughs> <laughs> just dated myself there. No, it's fine. Um, uh, the internet's basically a library anyways. It is. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes, just, sometimes just it's a, nice to just a like. A really unbiased librarian. <laughs> <laughs> right. And actually, if you went to a library, you'd probably have to dig out the microfiche or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably I'm actually date on the myself computer. And say, I'm going to date myself and admit I don't know what that is. So You don't know what microfiche no, is? No. How about microfilm? Like, you don't know what that is either? Is a microfiche like a robotic fist? <laughs> I love this. Okay, so... <laughs> Microfilm and microfiche was a way of archiving information that was so bulky that you just couldn't, like, so newspapers, yeah. like you have a whole newspaper. Imagine how bulky a newspaper is. But if you take a photograph of every page and then you put it on a film, like a film, literally a film strip, oh. and then you would run the film strip through, uh, not a projector, sort of like a way that you could view it on a full screen. Okay. No, I know what those are. Yeah. I've seen uh, Stranger Things had them. Okay. So that's what it is. Yeah. So my Microfilm. That's my, I, that's my frame of <laughs> reference there. I think the difference is the film is like on a roll and the fiche is like on a piece of paper. Okay. Like not a paper, but like a sheet. It's a single sheet. I could be wrong about that distinction, but. All right. I, I know what you mean. Cool. So <laughs> Sorry. You're learning more than. <laughs> I didn't mean to get off on a side. <laughs> that's all right. Side path. I love that because maybe some people in our audience have no idea. Either, oh, yeah, so maybe. that's good. Okay. So this is a quote from the Federal Writers Project 1935. It's just a little bit lengthy, but um, it talks about Ybor City. So. Ybor City as a whole, let me just back up. This is from an outsider's point of view, probably. Sure. Ybor City as a whole is a Latin community where a large number of the inhabitants have not become American citizens. The government, both national and local, has done very little toward making the Cuban people, as well as the other Latin nationalities, feel that they are Americans. Even many of the second and third generations of the Cubans, although born in the United States and by right of the Constitution, are Americans, are not considered as Americans by many of the English speaking Americans. Many of the English speaking Americans who have never associated with the Latins are biased against them without any cause whatsoever. That upsets me. Isn't that fascinating? Though? It is. That was in 1935. <laughs> yeah. My, I was reading some memoirs from my mom mm -hmm. who was born in 1937, a couple years after that. And in her memoir, she said she didn't even speak English until she was three. Like she spoke Spanish until she was three. And then she started to, you know, had to go to school and sort of sure. that sort of thing. So it upsets me because they were Americans, yeah. like regardless of what they thought or believed or what the, uh, the government or the the white people yeah. uh, thought or believed they were like they they're born and raised here they're Americans yeah. as far as I'm concerned so it kind of maybe I'm like especially as the generations went on like yeah. the first the first generation or two they seem to really be and not, I, I hesitate to be over generalizing but sure. um, to be very patriotic towards their homelands like they yeah. had a lot of sympathies and patriotism for either Spain or Cuba or mm -hmm. I'm assuming Italy you know so yeah which is fine yeah but. and some of them even wanted to potentially someday go back but like 
like especially after the Spanish American, not sorry, the Spanish Civil War, mm-hmm. they were like, well, maybe not. There's nothing to go back to now. Now this is going to be our home. So maybe some of them didn't even consider themselves to be American citizens. Sir, um, but it's it's just interesting. I don't know. I don't maybe know. Maybe I'm being too patriotic myself. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, I just it, don't want you to be upset about no, something that a, happened. I, I, no, <laughs> so no, that's ago. history. That's history for you. But no, it's just one of those scenes where I'm like, oh, like my yeah. heart kind of gave out a little when I. Uh, yeah, heard that. I, I hear I hear what you're saying, and I think I, I wanted to read that just to kind of give a sense of the time. So right, sure. I'm trying to create this no, picture of it, what it was it like did. then. Yeah, no, yeah. that's good. Okay, so on top of that quote, I'm going to read a second one. This one was quoted in 1997, but it's quoting about that sure. time period, and it was by Honorato Henry Dominguez in 1997. This is his quote. I, I love. I'm sorry. I love it when you say Spanish names. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it when you say Spanish names because you always know the correct pronunciation and it sounds so fun it's hard a little hard to go back and forth to me but anyway Uh, i got you thank you for saying so it was a position of importance to make the cigar I'm reading you this to give you the the perspective from the cigar makers. Sure, sure. It was a position of importance to make the cigar. It was the lifeblood of the community. And pride in yourself and your craft demanded you put total concentration and effort into the job. At the end of the day, you go home tired, but you would talk with the family, have dinner, relax, and play with the young ones, and you were fresh again. Then maybe you would go to town. <laughs> so it was a very Latin kind of thing, too. They would always go home, take a bath, because they smelled like tobacco sure. after working in the factories. Take a bath, get fresh, freshened up. A lot of times they would go out they're very social people so they would go to the clubs and hang out especially the men you know playing dominoes or whatever they just drinking coffee hanging out together um so i thought that that was kind of an interesting yeah not a bad life all things because i mean i'm sure there's tons of problems going on but as like a basic work spend time with the family and then hang out with your friends for the night it sounds it it sounds sounds pretty nice uh, there are worse lives (laughs) for sure (laughs) yeah for sure and i hate to just go quote after quote but here's no, a, here's another fine. little one from the Federal Writers Project in 1941. Okay. Uh, so a little bit after the last and, one. And so probably another outsider. Then. It's another outsider, I believe. I All mean, right. there could have been people there that were also I, federal. I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, but the way that that's phrased is it says Latins are politically minded. They are as intensely interested in politics in their native lands as in affairs at home. Even the poorest has a favorite coffee house, restaurant, or private club in which to spend evenings in search of discussion and recreation. So... I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Um, talking about the politically minded and, you know, knowing all kinds of things. I remember last time we talked about La Gazeta, the paper, the newspaper that is printed in Italian, English, and Spanish. Yeah, yeah, I remember now. In this book, I saw a picture of it from 1922, the front page. Mm-hmm. It had articles on there, a story from Madrid, a story from Washington, a story from Moscow, and a story from Havana. Wow. So all on the front page. So they were wow. really, you know. It very, very much like a, a global view there. Yeah, really really taking it all in there really interesting wow from 1922 that's that's crazy to me. And one last thing. Sorry. No, no, no. Sorry. I, I'm, I'm just baffled by that. That's all. Uh, continue. It is. It's a little <laughs> bit surprising, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. So last quote, talking about the people. Collectively, the cigar makers dress very well. It would be best for the tourist or anyone else who wants to enjoy one of our local attractions to go over and see Ebor by night, how the Cubans live, went off duty from making cigars. And that was from the Tampa Daily Journal in 1890. Wow. Wow. 1890. 1890 they always they always dressed well. I read another one where, you know, they would they wouldn't go to work in jeans, even though they're, you know, dealing with tobacco kind of, you know, mm-hmm. seems like dirty work. They were always dressed very nicely. 
that was me trying to paint a picture of kind of the people. Okay, like the I think you did a good and, job. And that, I have quotes. a very, I love good. it because I have a, a kind of an image of it. Okay, them I'm going to give you one more quick image. I'm going to sure. try to describe this picture I saw in this book. And it's of these men who are working in the cigar factory and they're picking out the right leaves or making a blend for some brand. I forget which, uh, it might have been the Cuesta Rey factory. Okay. They're dressed up nicely. They have cigars in their mouths while they're standing <laughs> there, kind of like with, I don't know if they have rakes or what they call the tools that they're using with this humongous pile of leaves. For they, they've all got these cigars hanging out of their mouths. So I thought that was kind of funny. Like they're making cigars, smoking cigars. Moving on to the factories now because we were kind of sure. segue into that. The factories were mostly brick or stone. They were between one and four stories tall. Okay. The bottom was always for packing and shipping the cigars. Makes sense because you can load stuff yeah, on the trucks. Yeah, trucks, but that doesn't make a lot of sense. The second floor is where they did the rolling. The third floor is for making special blends and brand-specific flavors of the cigar. Sure. Uh, if there was a fourth floor, I, I didn't see what <laughs> what they did maybe with that. Maybe that's one. just like the, well, no, they wouldn't put that in a factory. I was going. Th- I was thinking maybe that was like where the uh, all the paperwork was done. Yeah. And I thought, well, I don't know. <laughs> If they would have that in the factory necessarily, yeah. but that's interesting. I, it seems like though. if they would, that wouldn't be because heat rises. I bet that was. I bet it uh, got yeah. warmer as it went up. Oh, you're yeah, probably right. <laughs> I didn't even think of that, but yeah, because they weren't air conditioned. Of course, no, of course sort of they thing. weren't. Yeah, uh, that's always tricky. I have to put myself in that mindset. Where it's like, remember, they don't have like air conditioning yeah. or or in the beginning there wasn't even electricity, or, so they had these yeah. multi-story buildings. And when you see the cigar factories that are left now, there are lots of windows, tall oh, windows, yeah. so that a lot of natural light came in of course over time electricity did come but in the beginning they didn't have those no that makes sense yeah really interesting so in addition to the cigar factories the big ones and i gave off some numbers last time how many i think at one point there was more than 300 cigar factories but there were also these things called buckeyes or chinchales okay which chinchal is a bed bug oh okay (laughs) but a chinchal was like a small household factory so in a household or in a building a much smaller building there'd be like a small group of people or a family rolling cigars like oh. not part of one of the main um factories which i thought was really interesting, oh, interesting. so people so, could go learn how to do it there and so it's just like a family business potentially thing? Yeah. It's, it's not like, like a, a side business i don't know who they sold their cigars to or i don't know uh, but that's interesting so yeah. it isn't like a major brand or anything like that right. it's just like uh not unofficial, but like yeah, uh, on, on the side, and it was it side. was popular. Like this was a prevalent thing. Interesting. Um, there must have been such, such a demand. A, yeah, that's what I was going to say. There must have been such a high demand for it. Yeah, for there to you know have these factories produce mass produce these and then also i have the little guy entrepreneurs <laughs> you know like do basically the same yeah. product and be successful. In order to to comply with law, like uh, statutes or whatever, Mm -hmm. in order to do this in your house, I guess, some of them would just put up like a chicken wire line between the front and the back of the house or the front of the back of the room, wherever they were doing it. So it was actually a distinct location when they're doing that. That's kind of a little side note. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, Yeah, loophole. That's interesting because like... I don't know if that would hold up. I mean, it must have if they did it, but I was thinking if it's supposed to be a distinct location, yeah, I think that like mean a, a different technicality. building, not like a different room, but yeah. that's interesting. Another interesting part about the factories, and this is a really big thing, is there were these readers. They were called the readers. Mm. El lector, los lectores. Okay. The idea was introduced in 1864 in Cuba, and 
came to Key West when the cigar factories went there and then to Tampa when the cigar factories moved to Tampa and then to other places too, because, you know, cigar rolling was happening in other places like New York and I don't know where else. I, sure. I didn't go there, but the lector was part of the cigar factory scene. They were paid for by the workers, not the cigar factory owners. And basically it was entertainment education for the workers. So it could be oh. tedious, monotonous, you know, even though it's a, a skill and a craft and, you know, you have to be good at it. It's also very tedious, you know, so sure. you might roll 200, 250, 300 cigars in a day. So at first the cigar factory owners liked the idea of having the lector there because they thought that it helped production sure, uh, yeah. and interest. So, or at least morale. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So a little bit about the lector. He sat high above, like he was perched above the factory floor. Okay. So he looked out over the workers and the workers were all on their benches, kind of rows of them, sure. kind of looking a little bit like a classroom, you know, rows and rows of benches and people working. And they would read. They would read, I think, primarily, if not entirely, in Spanish. And they would read local news. They would read world politics, classic works like Don Quixote, oh. like Les Miserables, Uncle Tom's Cabin, wow. Das Capital. And what they would do is they would, the workers would vote on what to, what would be read. Oh, interesting. So they hired the guy, they chose what he would read. And then even though they may not have been able to read themselves, they were literate in the sense that they were, you know, they were they, knowledgeable they about. So, oh, that sounds so interesting. Isn't that it's so like cool. a, It's like a book club, uh, only with like a, added work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, you, you do something with your hands while you're taking it into your mm -hmm. ears. And then they would sell the papers and the books at half price or at a discount if cigar workers wanted to take the, the works home to their families, apparently. Wow. Yeah. So the luck, were you going to say something? No, no, no. Oh. I was just thinking how interesting that would be. I love it anytime that a community has exposure to a different culture or different new ideas because I always find that such a fascinating, like, discussion that tends to happen. It's totally. one of the reasons why I'm such a big fan of the musical Filler on the Roof, because uh -huh. it's, it's very much about that. Uh -huh. um, so I can only imagine, like, them reading, like, yeah. uh, Les Miserables, I think is how you say that, you know, which yeah. is France yeah. and, you know, all that stuff. And they would have these intellectual, they'd be able to have these intellectual discussions because they heard it. Yeah. You know, they knew it. They got really familiar with it. So mm -hmm. really interesting. And it also could create some problems. I'm going to get to that in a second. Oh, but okay. so the lector was a mo like a movie star. He wasn't a movie star, but it was like well-respected, very educated. Local celebrity kind yeah, of. Yeah, kind of like a celebrity. He had to like audition, them. I guess, for the part. You know, had to read in a very dramatic way because he was all about entertaining the workers. Sir. Um, so the first one, the first lector was in Ybor City in 1886, so almost okay. immediately after it started. Wow. And in West Tampa in 1893. In 1931 or 1932, it's a little hard to tell exactly when that happened, not quite 40 years after it started, the factory owners started to become concerned that the cigar workers were becoming too radical, like they were being oh. influenced by what the lectors were reading, like they were a dangerous influence. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, I, uh, they that, were voting for, like the workers were choosing yeah. the reading material, yeah, weren't they? Yeah, yeah but... Even though they were choosing it, I they guess. were spreading ideas about socialism, communism, and nihilism. Right. And it really influenced actual labor unrest because there were a lot of strikes. And I didn't talk to, I mentioned the strikes, but I didn't go into detail about any sure. of them or how long they lasted or how many there were. But there were a lot of labor strikes. So it was it was a frequent problem. So the lectores kind of were, seemed, the factory owners thought maybe they're kind of fanning those flames by mm -hmm. what they were reading, not just 
the works that were they were reading, but the news and that kind of thing, I guess. I don't know. But the factory owners removed the lectores. The cigar workers rebelled with a 10-month strike. Wow. They're like, no lectores, we're not going to work. No cigars. Yeah. Um, well, eventually, I, though, they, had, sense, to, they had to give in and go back to work yeah. without the lectores. Well, that's the thing, because on one hand, you need to get that money. Uh, on the other hand, I can totally imagine, like, how, like, obviously, I don't know. I'm not from that culture or that time. But if I was, like, uh, doing a tedious job all day and the this type of person was there, tell me all this cool stuff, yeah, you know, yeah. all this stuff that Teaching I'd be you, into. Entertaining Yeah, because I love learning things. Yeah. Um, and then suddenly he's like, no, you can't come anymore. And be like, ah, come on. <laughs> well, what do you think it was replaced by? Oh, geez. I don't know. It, it was replaced by something. Was it just silence in the factory? I see. Okay. They brought in radios, of course. Oh, yeah. yeah. All right. So one famous lector was Don Victoriano Mantega. He came from Cuba in okay. 1913 to take a job as a lector at the Morgan Cigar Factory. He founded La Gaceta, the newspaper. Oh. And actually he founded it in 1922, which is the same year that I said that there was articles from uh, Moscow, Washington. Oh, Havana, interesting. So and, he's an interesting person then yeah. if he's founded a newspaper that has like kind of an international global like a Tencent or, mm. or not a Tencent at Focus, a newspaper. But sort of. I said that wrong, but I meant like the newspapers, a Tencent was on a bunch of different yeah. things, not that a yeah. bunch of things had a Tencent, not the newspaper. <laughs> Sorry, that was a confusing right. way I said that, but you know what I mean. But I think he founded it because it gave the community a place to get the news. So I do want to read one quote here about the lectores. Sir. Oh, this one's too long. I'm going to have to cut it short. Okay, so I remember I said that the lectores... You know, in addition to causing problems with um, labor unrest and things like that, there there got to be some other disputes about what they were reading. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try to read just a little bit of this. This was in the Tampa Morning Tribune, December twenty second, nineteen oh four. Okay. Okay, just to give you some time. So a fatal duel with pistols occurred this morning at nine o'clock at the corner of eighteenth street and ninth avenue between Jesus Fernandez, a Spaniard, and Enrique Velasquez, a Mexican. A peculiar feature of the case is that the trouble which resulted in the fatal affray arose from a discussion of a novel. Wow. Interesting. So what happened was the no the novel was one that was written by French author Emile Zola. Okay. Apparently the female cigar workers thought that it was too, um, what's the word? It just was obscene and not and uh, unfit for a too, woman's ears. Too, too raunchy. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. Say, but the yeah. men were like, no, you know, we want to hear this. So there was a little bit of uh, discussion back and forth. And unfortunately, Jesus and Enrique, who were involved in this fight, uh, they were actually friends. Oh, no. Uh, and then they took it outside. Things got, you know, a little, a little heated, heated and yeah. they pulled a gun on each other and shot each other. They were at close distance. So that quote was from 1904, December oh, 22nd. Geez. I can't imagine. It gets better, though. Oh, okay. The next quote in the book from the next day, <laughs> <laughs> this is from the Tampa uh, Morning Tribune in the next issue, the next day's paper, okay. it says, and I thought this is so funny when I read it, Enrique Velasquez, the Mexican who was reported dead yesterday afternoon from the effects of the street duel yesterday morning, 
revived and rested quietly last night. <laughs> so, wait, wait. The newspaper got it wrong, yeah, I guess. Yeah, they had to basically do like a retracts and all Yeah, those. he didn't die. I yeah, take it wh- back. What about his friend? Did his friend I don't know. Unfortunately, or? yeah, he did. He was injured. I think they both got shot. Okay. He was just injured. I believe well, that's the story. hopefully that close encounter <laughs> told them to uh, cool, cool their heads a little bit. <laughs> Remember what I said about passionate Latin yeah, no, yeah. no, I get it, but it's like, yeah. geez, I know, that's a bit dr- it's so dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I've got two more. Well, I got just two more little subtopics to cover, and we're getting a little bit long, so I'm going to try to talk fast. Okay. So one thing I think that that's important for me to mention is the casitas. The casitas were the little houses that the cigar workers lived in, and one of the ways that Ibor and others wanted to try to entice the cigar Ebor workers. The yeah, okay. Vicente Ibor, sorry. <laughs> no, it's good. Wanted to entice the workers to stay there. And he, he wanted them to, he encouraged them to buy the homes. They weren't company-owned houses and just housed the people who were working there. Um, so people could buy these homes um, that were all like the same. They're constructed the same and they could pay out of their paycheck, you know, a little bit every week or whatever. These homes had a couple of nicknames. They were called shotgun houses. <laughs> and also... Um, Um, I'm going to read a quote about one, but it's because you could apparently shoot a bullet from the front door through the back door. Like if they were both open and and you wouldn't hit any walls or anything, Uh, you could just go straight through. And I think to me, I think that design potentially was for airflow. Probably. (laughs) Because again, he. That's such a violent like metaphor (laughs) or or not metaphor, but like description. (laughs) Yes, that's so true. It kind of is, but it's very, it's a very picturesque one. No, yeah, no, I I have an image in my head of what that looks like. In Spanish, they were called cañones. They were called the cañones or cannon houses. So, um, uh, probably, so you can probably fire a cannon down them. Yeah, I, I have a quote, but I'm not going to read it um, because it's basically says the same thing. But I see. there were <laughs> the houses were small, close together. They were made of wood, no air conditioning, and the windows were kept open in the warm weather to keep the air flow going. Sure. So the house that Abuelita, Abuelita's house in Palmetto Beach that yeah. is still in the family is I believe one of these casitas because it's the front door and the back door are lined up. Mm -hmm. Um, It's made out of wood. It's on brick stilts, you know, so it's, it's one of the, the it it does. It was built in 1910. So I would call it a shotgun house. It probably is. I love the fact that it's a piece of history of this history that we still have at least for now. So I love that. But there's a bit, another quote I want to do, but this one is not from this book. This quote is from my mom's memoirs. And I wanted to kind of stuff it in here. We're talking about the casitas because at last time we talked about uh, World War II and and I mentioned how there was celebration after the war and all that kind of stuff. And I could have stuck it in there, but I didn't have the quote ready and with me. So I just want to read this little bit because the memory took place in Palmetto Beach in the house I just described where she grew up. So this is a quote. The morning the news came over the radio that the war was over brought an amazing reaction everywhere. Most of my aware life had been spent at war. Now it was finally over. After the news that morning, people couldn't contain themselves. They all started filling the sidewalks, talking to neighbors, hooting and hollering, honking horns, clanging pot lids, jumping for joy. I'm supposing that every street in Palmetto Beach and maybe throughout the country was reacting in this manner. Then came the parade up and down all the streets in Palmetto Beach. There were cars and more cars following each other, honking their horns with people following behind on foot. I don't remember exactly how it happened or who initiated it organized it or saw it through but a group of neighborhood musicians ended up on the back of a flatbed truck leading the parade besides all the portable instruments that you might expect to see there was also a piano on the back of that truck 
<laughs> Who should be playing, dancing, and singing at that piano but my dad? I can see it all now. What excitement. Clapping, cheering, jumping around, and also crying. I had no idea my daddy was up to such shenanigans <laughs> and was thrilled to see him practically leading the parade. I'll never forget that day. Wow. So that that was, uh, you know, World War II? End of World War II when yeah. the war ended. And at that time, she was not even eight years old yet. Wow. She's between, maybe she was around six years old. So she remembers that distinctly. And oh, That's crazy. It is. That's uh, what she had known for uh, her life up till then was the sir, war. I'm just thinking of that famous picture of like the soldier coming home and like kissing the lady yeah, in the street. It's like yeah. kind of just that big joy. Like joy. Yeah. Okay. So moving from that memoir, I'm going to go to the last sort of big topic and that is um, the social clubs. I mentioned the social clubs, I think last time talked uh, about them being sort of patriotic. It, it rings a bell. So yeah, I yeah. think, I think you did in talk support, about a lot them. of them. Some of them started in support of Cuba's independence. Right, yeah. And they kind of turned into mutual aid societies. Okay. Although there were some of these societies existed in the cigar making industry in Cuba also before. So it wasn't just for Cuba independence. But the mutual aid societies provided cradle to grave care. So hospitals, clinics, long-term care, and cemeteries. Wow. Um, it wasn't socialized medicine. Like you had to pay a membership fee to be part of the club or the society, Um, but it's more like insurance because it was completely voluntary. You could belong or not belong or whatever. And it just kind of helped support, like as a way that the community helps support each other. There's nothing like this anywhere in the United States at that time, that kind of Wow. uh, So they were like the first to kind of start that idea, at least in America. Yeah. And again, it wasn't socialized medicine. It was was like an insurance policy. Sir, I don't want to get into contemporary politics, but there's a lot of kind of misconceptions about a lot of medical medical programs nowadays. Yeah. And that, that's all I'll yeah, say about other, that. Because that's a that's, that's a, a whole other that's thing. a whole other thing. So but yeah, no, I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. So in addition to this benefit mm-hmm. of kind of support, it was also a social outlet. They had gymnasium, theaters, cantinas, auditoriums where people would come, famous people would come sing, people could network there. They would go on excursions together, like the picnic I mentioned at the park. You know, the whole group would go to a park or something. And hundreds and hundreds of people would belong to these clubs. They were very sophisticated places. They were privately owned just through the memberships, like I mentioned. So as it turns out, each sort of nationality group had their own club. So there's the Círculo Cubano. There's also La Unión Martí Maceo. Actually, Martí Maceo probably since Cuban, but that was the Afro-Cuban one because remember I told you that the Cubans had to divide the whites and the blacks. So there was a white Cuban and a black Cuban club. Because of segregation. Right. Right. There was the Unione Italiano. There was the Centro Español. And I have a quote. So you remember Ignacio Aya? Uh, he, was, he was one of the founders. He was one of the founders yes. sort of of Ybor City. He was the one who's the first cigar rolled out of his factory. Right. Yeah. yeah. He got that uh, distinguished. Yeah. So in uh, 1892, here's a quote from Ignacio Aya. Okay. This is talking about the Centro Español, which was the Spanish club. Oh, okay. Uh, It was erected firstly (laughs) to unite the Spanish colony of Tampa and secondly to create a center for recreation and instruction. It is our intention to have familiar gatherings once a a week and classes in English and Spanish languages. Instruction will be given in the branches of literature and science so that this may become 
to its members a temple of learning, wisdom, and honor. That was the Centro Español. The Centro Asturiano is also for Spaniards, but Spaniards specifically from the province of Asturias mainly. I mean, I think others were allowed to come in also. Sure. But the Spanish club was for like everybody from Spain, and this one was specifically more for people from Asturias. So I just want to, another personal note real quick that my grandmother, Abuelita, who passed mm-hmm. away in 2009, she was 95. Right. Um, wow. She lived Sorry. in Palmetto Beach That's... her whole life. Mm-hmm. And she served on the hospital auxiliary for the Centro Asturiano for a number of years. Okay. She also, while I'm talking about her, she also volunteered at a museum in Ybor City uh, where they have some casitas set up. And she would give tours to people talking about, you know, life back in the day of the casita. She did that. She volunteered there for about 13 years. So she was really vested in her community. And I think that's probably why I have such a soft spot for Ybor City is just because my family loved it. It was, it's in our hearts. That, that makes sense. I mean, there's such a history there. Uh, first of all, this is a fascinating location with a fascinating history. But the fact that, you know, you have not even distant ancestry, but like and me, like your 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 mother and your grandmother yeah, and all that. People I knew, my great grandmother who came from Spain, who I yeah. knew, who I met. You know, I knew until I was twenty. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. It makes sense why you'd be so into it. Yeah, yeah. I want to finish with two things. Sure, of course. Do you remember? Well, three things. <laughs> Do you remember right. uh, last time we talked a little bit about urban renewal? Uh, yeah, um, we, and we talked about how a little bit. They, yeah, they just like they wanted to kind of clean up the place by getting rid of a whole bunch of stuff. I, I recall that they built like a road right yeah, through they it built the freeway something. the interstate through it and took down a whole bunch of houses that people lived in and had lived in just in the name of progress or making things better or whatever but here's a quote from 1979 because that happened like in the mid 60s sure it says so this is about urban renewal right now more than a decade later what people basically remember about urban renewal in Ebor city is that the bulldozers rumbled through and pushed more than 1100 families from their homes there is no quote unquote walled city, which I think they were promised through urban renewal, and uh. instead of homes for Vicente Martinez Ibor cigar workers and their descendants, there is a great, weedy, deserted plain of rubble in Ibor City. That was in the Tampa Tribune, May 13th, 1979. Somebody even stated um, that it looked more like when Vicente Ibor arrived there <laughs> because it was just, you know, buildings were just teared down, just rubble, things like yeah. that. And I'm going to finish with one last quote. Sure, that sucks that like it they, suck? yeah, because they didn't get the the benefits out of it, it sounds like. Yeah, they took it all down and didn't follow up with the, uh, the, the good part. This is a short quote by Jose Iglesias in 1974. And I've seen his name kind of weeding through it out. I'm not sure who he was. Sure. But anyway, he says in 1974, whenever I go back to Tampa, where I was born, I spend most of my time bemoaning the breakup of its Latin section, Ybor City. Only a building here and there remains of that special Latin community that was sustained by the cigar industry of handmade luxury Havanas. So it's such a special spot in, in the hearts of a lot of people. And a lot of them are not in Ybor City anymore. They're spread throughout the country now. Sure. You know, people like us, descendants of people who lived there then, you know, we're entirely on the other coast. Okay, so for real, to really wrap up. Because <laughs> I've gone on too long. And listeners, if you're still with us, thank you so much. I hope you've enjoyed the last couple episodes on a topic that's really near and dear to my heart. I wanted to give a shout out to some of the research, some of the books that I took from. One is the Tampa 
classic our workers, like I mentioned earlier. Another one is uh, Ybor City Chronicles, which is a, a memoir by Ferdy Pacheco. Ferdy Pacheco is uh, a well-known name in Ybor City area. He okay. is also well-known outside of Ybor City. He was Muhammad Ali's fight doctor. Oh, okay. And he's an artist, a, um, a writer, <laughs> clearly. And he chronicles a lot of interesting things about Ybor City. So if you ever get your hands on something he's written or see some of his really unique and beautiful art, it's kind of a cool thing. Interesting. Um, okay, cool. Um, <laughs> let's see. The other things I wanted to tell you, if you ever get to go to Tampa, and this is not turning into a tourism travel guide no, podcast. No, I won't allow it. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> but check out the Ybor City State Museum, which is an, an old bakery, Ferlita's Bakery. Okay, cool. Go check out a casita. Check out, definitely check out La Segunda Central, which is a bakery where you can get some the best Cuban bread and Cuban sandwiches. Go to the University of Tampa where you can find out information about Henry Plant, which I haven't even mentioned yet, and <laughs> the Rough Riders and just the, the university itself. Very cool. Get yourself a cup of coffee at Naviera <laughs> and go to the Columbia restaurant. So shout out to the, there's some a lot favorite of places. Awesome locations there is what you're saying. There are. Of course, it's not all very far from the beach either. So you could go there too. So I wanted to give a, a shout out to our audience. I just want to say thank you for staying with us and listening. Hopefully, I mean, I'm just like, I don't know, I've been blown away by all the, the stuff we talked about. It's really fascinating. I had no idea like there was such a crazy history. And I, um, it's I given our, me an opportunity to, to teach yeah, you about something. And some I of hope our history. audience is, uh, equally interested i don't know how else to say that yeah it's hard to know how it's going to land on somebody else's ears because you know of course i'm super interested i hope that everybody mm -hmm. has and if you don't have dig it up because there's probably something in in everybody's family's history that's interesting fascinating I'm i would sure. hope it's a it's a very satisfying thing to feel connected i think in some way to your roots and you can't feel connected unless you know something about them so <laughs> um i think that's really really cool but yeah. anyway our next topic is going to be right we're going back uh, to the old system where yeah, you get to come I, up I'm with gonna, i'm gonna be uh i have one picked out i find i think it's really interesting i hope you think so as well uh do you know who steed bonnet is Steve Bonnet? Steed Bonnet. Are you saying Steve like? No, Steed. Steed, like a horse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Steed Bonnet. He was a pirate. Uh, he was a pirate. The, uh, I was going to say, was he part uh, of? Uh, 1700s. Oh, Bonnet. Oh, I yeah. do recognize when you say, okay, pirate, Bonnet. That's another thing I could have talked about was the pirates in Tampa Bay. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So much. I'm eager to hear and yeah, learn more and about a, Steve Bonnet. He's a Steve very Bonnet. unique pirate, let's say. So I, Wait, was it a girl? Okay, we'll no, get into it. No, it was a guy. It. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get into uh, it next time. Yeah, so that's going to be real exciting. I can't wait for that. But Awesome. I'm yeah, looking forward to that. Time. Audience, we appreciate you more. More than you know. So uh, we look forward to uh, you joining us at the next part of our conversation. Bye. Confucius once said, study the past if you would define the future. You've been listening to the History Slices podcast with Jacob and Rachel. We hope you've gotten some useful information from the show. We hope we made you think and we hope you were entertained. We know we had fun. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hook up with us on Facebook at History Slices and on Instagram at History Slices Podcast. Make sure to like, rate, and review the show. And tell a friend about the show. That'll help us out too. One more quote before we go from Michael Crichton. If you don't know history, then you don't know anything. You are a leaf that doesn't know it's part of a tree. Till next time, this is History Slices, signing off. Thank <laughs> you.